brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and even though these are troubled times and we have every excuse to be distracted, with many people struggling to plan a future or even maintain a manageable present, it feels as if many of us have forgotten about the very curiosities we had before the era of COVID everything. Quantum mechanics, epigenetics, the biology of belief, ether physics, consciousness, dreamtime insights, altered states, intention, and even what is often just called magic. If these things are important, if they speak to the nature of reality, our essence, as conscious awareness having a human experience, or anything relating to the fundamental mechanisms of this universe and our place in it, understanding them and using them in a time of crisis is crucial. We know that experiments done in the quantum realm have revealed the importance of a conscious observer, that plenty of other studies have enlightened us on a field of energy that connects all things, and that these pieces of the puzzle help explain even more remarkable phenomenon like remote viewing and even remote healing. It seems like some aspects of modern science might finally be catching up to the insights and teachings of countless spiritual gurus and shamanic figures, And it's about time, because it seems like the Western materialist paradigm we're so conditioned to latch onto is the biggest thing that's holding us back. So in a year when people want to parrot that often repeated phrase of trust the science, let's do exactly that and actually explore what the science of consciousness, intention, and remote healing actually says with a woman who knows more about it than nearly anyone I could get in the guest chair. Her name is Lynn McTaggart, and she is a journalist and bona fide expert on the science of spirituality. As the architect of the Intention Experiment and dozens of other studies on consciousness and group healing, she has been looking deeply into these things for over 20 years. Lynn is also the award-winning author of several books that break down the journey and the results with titles like The Intention Experiment, Using Your Thoughts to Change Your Life and the World, The Bond, How to Fix Your Falling Down World, The Field, The Quest for the Secret Force of the Universe, and The Power of Eight, Harnessing the Miraculous Energies of a Small Group to Heal Others, Your Life, and the World. But that's not all, folks. She's also the co-founder and editor of one of the world's most respected health magazines, 
What Doctors Don't Tell You, now published in 15 languages worldwide, and Get Well, the International Holistic Health Expo. You can find all of that and more on our website, lynnmctaggart.com, and it is an honor and a pleasure to have her here. The Power of Eight pioneer, energy healing advocate, and connoisseur of consciousness science, Lynn McTaggart, welcome to the higher side. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much. I think I've been called all kinds of things, but uh, connoisseur of consciousness, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It is the least I can do. I try to be creative. Got to get them quick. The attention spans are short these days. <laughs> but thanks so much for taking the time to be here. I am really excited about this one. It's been a crazy year, and when so many people are in this high state of fear and stress, if not from the virus itself, then at least the uncertainty and economic impact that's been caused by the policies around it. And it just feels like people sometimes tend to forget about work like yours in times like these. Or maybe some people feel as if these effects are too subtle for the things that we have going on in 2020. So I'm happy we can offer them a reminder. I know it's hard to break down 20 years of research into just a few minutes, but to get the ball rolling here, can you walk us through the highlights of this journey where you started with some experiments on seeds and eventually scaled up to some pretty amazing things? What's the overview for people who might be new to this? Well, actually, my journey into this area started in the early 1990s, believe it or not, uh, a long time ago. When we had just launched What Doctors Don't Tell You, which was a newsletter when we launched it in 1990, and it's now an international magazine. So I was very curious because we look at the scientific evidence for alternative medicine in our magazine, then newsletter. So I study medical literature. And in the course of doing that, I kept coming across these really good studies of spiritual healing and things like acupuncture and homeopathy. And I kept thinking, particularly when it came to spiritual healing, how can you take a thought and send it to someone else and make them better? That seems to undermine everything we think about how the world works. So I set off to try to find out how things like spiritual healing and homeopathy and acupuncture work. And I figured it would be fairly simple that I would meet some scientists, frontier scientists. I would talk to them. They would give me information about human energy fields or something like that. And then I would take that back, write it up, and that would be that. But that wasn't that at all. <laughs> As I started researching and spoke to all of these frontier physicists, biologists, you know, people in all kinds of areas working on pioneering research, I realized that they were, all of them, on the brink of a completely new understanding of how the world works and how we work, and that their studies essentially drove a stake into the heart of accepted science. The only problem is these scientists speak in math. They speak in code. And they also don't like to venture beyond their own experimental evidence. So I realized soon enough that I was going to have to interpret this and also put it all together. So that synthesis became my book called The Field. After I published it, and this has been really the story of my journey, which is I am driven by my own 
curiosity. I'm driven by my own enthusiasms. And I was fascinated by some of the evidence that I had written about in the field from these scientists, work in the lab, showing that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. And of course, the journalist, the skeptic in me said, well, what are we talking about here? Because, you know, this was the time of the secret and the law of attraction all coming to the fore. And I kept thinking, well, are we talking about just shifting a quantum particle, a very subtle effect, or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? <laughs> and also I was fascinated by a bit of evidence done by the Transcendental Meditation Organization showing that when there was a critical mass of meditators, the crime rate went down. So I wondered, well, what happens when a group of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? Because meditation is the absence of thought. What about if we have a specific intention? Does it supersize the effect when more than one person is doing it? So I decided to test this. And aside from assembling all of the evidence about intention into my book, The Intention Experiment, the book was also an invitation for people to join me and do intention experiments. And every so often I would get a scientist in one of the prestigious universities who was doing consciousness research to put together a well-controlled study. And I would ask my readers around the world, and by then the field was in 30 languages, so I had loads of readers. And I thought, well, if I just put them together, I'm going to have the biggest global laboratory in the world. And that's what I did. I didn't expect it to work or only have a very subtle effect. But we've run 35 experiments to date since 2007. Everything from trying to make seeds to grow faster, to purifying water with our thoughts, to lowering violence in war-torn or violent areas, to even curing someone of PTSD. And of those 35, 31 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. Just to put that in context, there is no pharmaceutical drug out there with that kind of consistent track record. Mm. So that's where I got to. And the power of the bond really came about in wanting to say, well, that was trying to answer Darwin and the science by which we tend to live, Newtonian science, Darwinian science, and to say, you know, were we meant to be so competitive and individualistic? as those two scientists essentially espouse. So I wrote that book to really help people live in a new way. And then the power of eight really came about by accident, trying to see if what we were learning in the intention experiment could be shrunk down into a workshop setting. I didn't expect we were going to get results. I didn't know what to do. And one night I was just saying to my husband, well, I don't know, maybe I'll just put them in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention as a group to a member of the group with a health challenge. And I expected it to be a very mild effect. We had people come back that the day after that workshop, Saturday, they came back on the Sunday for the next day of the workshop to report on what happened. And I expected them to say, well, this felt a bit like getting my back rubbed, you know, mildly relaxing. And that's not what they said. They said things like this. I have depression. 
and I've had it for years and years, and it's suddenly completely lifted. I have terrible knee arthritis, and I'm walking normally today. You know, I have awful gut problems. My gut is clear today and feels fine. I have cataracts, and I'm 80% better. And, you know, on and on and on it went. So the journalist in me was completely dumbfounded, extraordinarily skeptical. But since that time, I've run thousands of Power of Eight groups. And in so many instances, we see extraordinary, miraculous, instant healings. Hmm. Yes, that is a great summary. And when it comes to the seed experiments, you know, these small things where you got started, it seems like a simple picture of the seeds was all that was needed. I believe you were doing this with a live audience at the time. So you show them the picture and that is wild because what does that say about reality? Because we probably couldn't even match the seeds to the right photograph if they were sitting in front of us. And I would think a man-made invention like the photograph would get in the way of the effect, but obviously it doesn't. You also tend to use pictures of people as targets and it seems to work the same way, but that is curious when you think about reality. What does that mean to you? Greg, that's such a great question. Absolutely. The first time I did the seed experiment, it was early on in the intention experiments. 2007. And I was working with the University of Arizona. I used different universities for different experiments, essentially keep it independent. So I was working with the University of Arizona, psychologist Gary Schwartz, and he and his lab set up four sets of seeds with 30 seeds each in a tray with individual little spaces for seeds. He photographed all four sets. We labeled them A, B, C, D, sent me all four photographs. My job was then to have the audience choose randomly one of the four sets without us telling the scientists. And the first time I ran this, I was in Sydney, Australia, with an audience of about 700. We chose the seeds, let's say seeds A. We sent intention to that photograph of the seeds and then told the scientists when we were done with the intention, still not telling them which seeds we sent intention to. And that was their cue to plant the seeds for about five days and measure them afterward. And only when they'd finished measuring did I unblind the study and say, oh, and by the way, our target was seeds A. Well, the seeds sent intention on that experiment grew significantly higher than controls. We ran that study five more times through a, a smaller audience of about 100 in Rhinebeck, a bigger audience in South Carolina, medium-sized audience in Dallas, big audience in LA, and over the internet with my audience around the world. And every single time the seed sent intention grew significantly higher than controls. Let's go back to that first one, because we did it the same way every time, but let's just unpack the significance of that. So you're right. We weren't actually sending intention to the seeds themselves. We were sending intention to a photographic representation of the seeds. And also, we weren't in the same room as the seeds. We were in Sydney, Australia. The seeds are in a lab in Tucson, Arizona, 8,000 miles away. Nevertheless, we had an extraordinary effect. 
So that gave me clues about the idea of intention creating a kind of psychic internet where we're all thinking, a group of people anywhere are thinking a similar thought at the same time. It has that kind of power, even with a symbol of the thing, not even the thing itself, which is really what a photograph is. And as you say, we've done intentions, many intentions. Just putting up a photo of someone, I do an intention of the week. Every week, my community sends intention to three people who have been nominated by our audiences everywhere around the world, people who have illnesses of every sort. So we choose three, we put them up, and our audience sends them intention every Sunday. And we've had some extraordinary things. Most recently, a guy was due for a double leg amputation because of bone cancer. And after our intention, the doctors went in to amputate his legs, realized the cancer was completely encapsulated, easily took it out, his legs were saved. And they themselves said, there's some kind of miracle going on here. So we've been able to do intention with photographs. And that does say something extraordinary about the nature of consciousness. It really does. It really does. And you mentioned pharmaceuticals, and I was going to bring up this very thing, because I think when people hear about these sorts of things or that initial famous experiment of trying to affect a random number generator, they see the needle move from 50-50 or chance to something like 52%. And it does just seem very subtle. But as you've said, from an effect size statistics perspective, this isn't very subtle. And in fact, some pharmaceuticals are no more effective, and that's pretty huge. Yeah, the random event generator experiments you're talking about were the famous ones done at the Pear Lab at Princeton University, run by the late Robert John. And he and his assistant, associate, Brenda Dunn, a psychologist, put together this amazing program where they created a bunch of electronic devices that are like the 21st century version of the toss of a coin. They're an electron version of a toss of a coin. And they have a random output of either, let's say, one or zero, or in their case, they had images going on computer screens of things like cowboys and Indians, you know, just randomly back and forth. And you should, if you just have a random process, pretty much get 50-50 of cowboys and Indians coming out of the system. And what they would do is put an operator in front of the computer and have him or her will the computer, for instance, to have more cowboys than Indians or more Indians than cowboys. And as you say, when they lump together 25 years of hundreds of thousands of these experiments, they came up with an effect size of 52%. An effect size is essentially the rate of change. Now, that doesn't sound like much. It sounds like it's about chance until you look at the effect size of something like aspirin. Aspirin is considered one of the real success stories with drugs. And of course, it's not just used for headaches and pain now. It's used to thin the blood for all kinds of operations, stroke victims, et cetera, et cetera. And the effect size of aspirin is 10 times smaller. Hmm. So that just gives you an idea of the power 
of consciousness and the power of collective consciousness. There's another thing I wanted to tell you about that was very recent, really fascinating. We did an experiment, and this was just a casual experiment without really measuring the outcome per se, doing an intention to help rebuild Beirut. And we had something very specific about more funding for the people there after the explosion this summer. When we were doing that, just to see if there was an effect of this collective consciousness, I asked Dr. Konstantin Korotkov to set up an experimental device he calls Sputnik, which is a device that measures very subtle changes in the atmosphere, essentially. And it measures it via changes in human emotion. But here's the thing. His equipment and he were in St. Petersburg, Russia. We had two more devices like that in Dubai and one in India. And we had them all going when we did this intention. And the people who were participating were scattered around the world. We had people from the Middle East. We had people from America, et cetera, et cetera, all over the place. And me here in the UK, we sent intention and we found afterward a huge change in the device in Russia just at the point we started our experiment. Now, I hadn't even told Dr. Karatkov when we were going to start sending intentions. So he turned on his equipment much, much earlier and didn't know until after the fact again when we were doing it. We sound a huge change as we did in Dubai, as we did in India big change in the output of this equipment. And that really says something amazing about the power of our thoughts to go out there in the world and affect things all over the world. Hmm. Yeah, it is so impressive. But then I just start thinking about the state of the world, or as you said, many people concentrating on a thing can create change. And I, I think about an example like I don't know, the Queen of England, for example, living high on the hog in modern times, no real justification for that anymore. And it irks a lot of people who are not happy with their day job or just seeing all the opulence. And yet it continues. And I just wonder about these big, big things, like kind of like photographs. The technology is not necessarily a part of the natural world. So it's weird that this effect can be used through photographs. When you think about someone like the Queen of England, a person is not supposed to be able to get this much attention. You know, they get worldwide recognition. So that's a lot of minds concentrating. And I would say often negatively uh, on a person in this position, but yet she's what, near 100 years old, no signs of uh, the monarchy being dismantled. Why haven't we been able to manifest a utopia at this point with so many people thinking and wanting good things. I'm going to just answer, first of all, the statement about a lot of negativity toward the queen. I mean, I live in the UK. The queen is the most loved figure. And it's not because she's an opulent individual living in a palace or whatever. It's because of what she stands for. We can't understand it, us being Americans. You know, it seems very strange for us because we elect or theoretically elect political figures. 
But the queen is somebody who essentially represents the best of England. And that's what she lives on in the hearts of people. So for her and toward her, there's extraordinarily positive feeling. She's a kind of a steadier of the state ship. When there is a crisis, she comes and speaks to the people. And it's like, it's like mom coming and talking to you. But it's more than that. It is something like the whole pride of a nation coming together. And she's that also for a good deal of the Commonwealth, which is, you know, 100 plus countries. So there is probably far more positive feeling toward the Queen than there would be with anyone else. And I think also the fact that, I mean, people are watching The Crown, which a lot of it is fictional. They take the bare bones of something that might have happened and they, they write in a whole bunch of things. And there's I've lived through some of what they're going through right now being over here. And there's an enormous liberties and not really accuracies in there. But regardless of what you think about the queen, you or me or anybody else out there, the point is for a lot of people, she is a representation of something really positive, something that is above politics and is something about pride, unity, community, all of those good things. So I think there's there's that. Then there's your other question about, well, how come we haven't come to a utopia? Well, when was the last time you thought of everybody on earth thinking a positive thought all at the same time? I would wager never. <laughs> so I think that we have a lot of work to do to go beyond that to, number one, belief in the possibility that we can do this, and two, a coming together to do it. Fair, fair. The Queen might not be the best example, but there are a lot of world leaders that their people are disenfranchised and not happy with the tyrannical government that they're underneath. And in those cases, I don't know, I guess it just seems odd that the collective negative thoughts against a person doesn't really seem to disrupt their power in a lot of situations, or maybe it does. Well, we're not thinking coherently. I mean, negative intention, that's a great question, Greg, because negative intention has just as much power as positive intention. I wrote all about it in my book, The Intention Experiment. So there's no question that we can affect people negatively. I mean, just look at Qigong masters. They can send somebody flying across the room, if they're really skilled, in what they call destroying mind. And there's been many, many studies showing that negative intention works just as well as positive intention. Done all kinds of strange studies trying to make things grow faster and then trying to retard their growth with negative intention. And they found it works just as well. But the point is we're not all thinking the same thing at the same time. You know, so many of us around the world are disgusted with our leaders. We feel there is no leadership. We feel the politics is ridiculous. You know, people are almost, I don't know about historically, all-time low, but certainly for modern times, we're all at an all-time low. But we're not all thinking the same thing at the same time. We might be just thinking, oh, 
with another idiotic statement that our president or our prime minister said, or we're angry at the outcome of the election, or we're ecstatic at the outcome of the election or whatever, and angry at people who don't believe in the same thing we believe in. But that's still not about coming together with a common intention. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a fair point. The intention statement is very important. I'm sure we'll get into that. You know, when a person goes to your website, the main banner says, what if you had the power to heal every area of your life and the lives of everyone around you? You already do, but it has been hidden from you. And that is one of my preoccupations. What has been hidden from us and by who? How do we know that this type of information isn't just new, but it has been known and intentionally hidden? Well, it has been known. I mean, I'm fairly convinced that Jesus was talking about the power of intention when he talked about group prayer. He told his disciples, and it's all written down in the Acts, that section of the Bible called the Acts, where he said, you know, essentially pray together and you will heal and you will be healed. He was essentially telling them to do group prayer, group healing, group intention. So it's been known. But, you know, you have to look at our arc of understanding about ourselves and what happened with science about 300 plus years ago. You know, Newton, for all of his great things in presenting information that's helped us fly jet airplanes, he metaphysically ripped us out of the center of our world. There was much more belief in, call it magic, before. And the idea of the human being is central to some of that magic. And that got taken away. And now we're hearing in our current times about our need to upgrade. You know, there are books like The Great Reset, talking about how we really need to, our next stage of evolution has to require AI machinery, implants, and all sorts of things. And my argument to all of that is that's complete nonsense. We haven't even begun to tap into the extraordinary potential we have. I see it every single day, and it astounds me. When I started doing the Power of Eight groups, and as I told you, I was completely floored by what was going on. I started doing it over and over and over again. I started studying it. I started monitoring it. We even did studies on it to find out why people could be healed with a small group doing intention in an instant. I'll give you an example. Last summer, I was speaking at a conference And like I do with every conference that I'm speaking at, I, at the end of my talk, I put people in groups and let them experience this power of eight groups. I ask them to send healing intention to a member of the group with a health challenge. They do. And then afterward, I ask for volunteers. Anybody, raise your hand if you, and please speak and tell us if you had any kind of effect. And we get all kinds of amazing things. I had one session not long ago where you know a woman was due for knee replacement surgery. Her knee was wobbly, so wobbly, she couldn't really even walk on it. And after her healing intention, she did a deep squat. Same thing, we had somebody who couldn't focus her eyes post-stroke, and 
she was the recipient of the healing intention and her eyes began to focus again. Somebody else dislocated shoulder, shoulder literally slotted back into place during the intention and the pain went completely down and, you know, on and on and on. Last summer, we had a woman, I swear to you, and it's on, <laughs> I have it on film and I talked to her afterward. I was so astounded by it. She was in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down. Some weird idiopathic paralysis that would come and go. And it started the last year. And it was mostly there with very brief respites. And so her group did a healing intention for her. And it was particularly tragic because she's a young woman and a dancer and a dance teacher. And after it, when we asked for people to talk about their experiences, her group nominated her and she stood up. She stood up, she turned around, she talked to the group, she moved her hands and arms, et cetera, et cetera. And we've had that kind of thing happen all the time, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So I see this all the time and I realize, to answer your original question, when we talk about what's been hidden from you, the science, Newtonian science, with Darwinian science, with modern thoughts, we have removed our own magic capability, our own miraculous capability. And this is one of them. I mean, there are other aspects of human potential I've written about in the field, ESP. And I also do practices with ESP as well as intention in my big year-long Power of Eight Intention Masterclass I run every year. We do these kinds of healings. We do precognition. I've seen remote viewing. I do remote viewing in my course too. Some amazing things where people <laughs> pick out all kinds of things, even on Zoom. And we have this extraordinary capacity. We just have to relearn it. And that's really what my website is talking about. And what's what my work is all about is giving people back their own miracle. Mm, well said. And yes, consciousness is pretty amazing. And those are some great examples of the upper limits of what you've been able to help people with in terms of targets with health challenges. You mentioned healing cancer with thoughts in the beginning. And it's funny because I was going to ask you about what are the limitations of this? And my examples were going to be, could it heal paralysis or blindness? And those are examples that you pretty much gave us already. But what about something like dementia or, or just anywhere where the line gets drawn? Is there anything that has been a bridge too far for this kind of intention? No, no. I've seen terminal cancer get turned around. I've seen paralysis. I've seen Alzheimer's get much, much, much improved, but also not just health issues. I've also seen people's life issues change. For instance, we had a woman in one of my year-long master classes called Andy, who was trying to get a new job, and she couldn't get a job anywhere. And she was very talented, a woman in her, probably in her late 30s, early 40s, Lots of experience in marketing and coaching. She'd run her own business, but she had sold it and she just wanted a job. And she had two young children to support. She was just going through a divorce. 
So everything, her group, she was in a power of eight group, a small group doing intention for her week on week, which is what happens with my master class. I put people into groups and work with them for a whole year. And she wasn't getting anywhere. So I finally just said, Andy, get off of yourself. Do intention for someone else. And I'll get to that later. That's a big piece of what goes on here. Mm-hmm. And she did. She started doing intention as I asked all of the master class to do for a young boy called Luke who had broken up with his first serious girlfriend. So in a fit of adolescent angst, he threw himself off a 40 foot structure onto hard ground. And Luke broke everything in his body, all of his bones. He had brain damage. He had nerve damage. Doctors didn't think he was going to live. So at the behest of his stepfather, we started setting up an intention vigil three weeks in a row, three Sundays in a row, while stepfather kept a running commentary of what was going on with Luke. Now, because of that, it was fascinating to see that Luke had enormous responses just at the time we were doing intention every week. And bottom line, he got out of the hospital in record time. He's a normal 18-year-old now. Now, that could have been good doctoring. And it also could have been our intention. But it was fascinating. It wasn't a placebo effect because Luke, like most teenagers, thought his parents' belief in anything was stupid, particularly the power of intention. But what was fascinating was what happened to Andy because as soon as Andy got off of herself, she got a call out of nowhere from somebody offering her what turned out to be a dream job. So we had that over and over and over again. Every year I see people get windfalls, you know, and it oftentimes is exactly the money they need. They need $2,330. Something comes through the mail that is approximately or exactly that, or something happens to them. We had a woman who's part of my current master class who did intention to set up meditation groups in schools. And she wasn't getting anywhere. So her group started to her power of eight group started doing intention for her to set up this project. And lo and behold, she suddenly got deluged with schools who wanted to do this and a documentary maker who wanted to film it. So suddenly she's got over 100 schools, 5000 students documentary coming on after the power of intention. So that kind of thing happens all the time or A woman the other day who told me about her husband, who was just diagnosed by a doctor with having real problems with his heart, needed a pacemaker. And they are very much believers of holistic medicine, didn't like that idea at all. So she had her group intend that the doctor would be completely wrong. She would find a holistic doctor who would come to a different conclusion and that her husband would be completely well. And they did that. And it all happened just like that. And her husband was completely fine, didn't have to go through any operation. So I see it for people themselves, for other members of the group, for people outside the group. It's extraordinary. (laughs) Yes, it is. And you alluded to this in a couple of the examples used so far, but I wanted to get a bit deeper into that odd phenomenon, that odd mechanism, call it a blowback effect or an intention ricochet 
But it seems like when a person will send intention for someone else, they end up having it loop back to them. Maybe it's a mirroring effect, but it seems baked into this protocol or baked into reality itself. What are your thoughts on why it seems to happen this way? Because it seems pretty wild. It really is. But, you know, when you actually, again, the journalist and me needed to find out, well, what the heck is going on here? So I started looking into the science of altruism. And I found that altruism is really amazing. It's like a bulletproof vest. When you start doing things for other people, no matter how small, taking out your neighbor's garbage, for instance, you lead a healthier, happier, longer life. I mean, studies of people with a particular illness, if they help someone else, they're more likely to be healed. There was a wonderful study of that by a psychologist who was also a priest who wanted to know whether or not prayer could help people with mental illness. There was certainly plenty of studies showing that it can help physical illness, but can it help mental illness too? So he got hold of 400 people with clinical depression, divided them into two groups, had one group get the prayer, the other group give the prayer. And the people who got the prayer were really much, much better after the healing prayer, but nowhere near as good as the people who had given the prayer. Their improvement was off the charts. And as I say, you know, there is volunteers. They live longer lives, healthier lives. People who help in any way experience what they call helper's high. It's almost like going jogging. You know, you get this big whoosh of endorphins. And probably the most persuasive study of all about this was a study that looked at the difference in terms of immunology, so your immune system, between people who were trying to be successful for themselves and were basically going after the good life, making a lot of money, having a pleasurable life, and were just basically living for themselves and their, and their own, versus people who said, well, I'm not as affluent, but I've learned through my life experiences, I want to be of service, I want to contribute. People wanted to live a life of service and meaning, and meaning was the real key here. And they found when they looked at immune system differences, they found that the people who were just chasing the good life, who had everything you know you could possibly want, those type of people had terrible immune system markers, signs of inflammation. These people were perfect candidates for heart attacks, Alzheimer's, the whole degenerative laundry list compared to the people who were living a life of service and meaning. They had robust immune systems. These people were going to live forever. So that, to me, really encapsulated the whole idea of the power of this intention for other people. When you get off of yourself and you intend for other people, it seems to activate a whole bunch of things in terms of possibility, as well as there being an X factor that I can only accept and not completely explain. <laughs> I love it. The universe is very fascinating. And I really love how 
aggressively scientific you are about the research and the data because it is the path to wider acceptance. But in this realm of intention and the power of a highly trained consciousness, this is something I became interested in after hearing the claims of people that say they're into the occult and the claims of magic practitioners. I don't know to what degree you've studied that, but these are groups of people that were pretty much in the past eradicated by the power centers of their day. And they were largely talking about this same stuff, the power to affect the world with a well-trained mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is not new. Oftentimes, when I try to find antecedents for the power of eight group, where it's democratic and distributed, I could find many, many antecedents that were intention circles or in indigenous populations, you know, healing and healing groups. But there was always a guru. There was always the shaman or somebody who was going to lead the group. And he would be really considered the person who was doing the healing or leading them. Whereas in our power of eight groups, it's completely democratic. As I say, people do it together. You may have somebody who is helping to lead it or keeping time, for instance. But really, it is about everyone doing that intention statement together. But going back to what you're saying about, you know, the powers that be stopping this, well, it's extraordinarily powerful. And we're seeing that again with so many clampdowns on holistic medicine, which is also the body being able to, you know, help marshal the body to heal itself. There are so many more threats to that now than there was previously. So you always see that with the powers that be looking at the power that individuals have individually or as a collective. And that is always a concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. And when it comes to magic and comparing it to what you've been doing, I am curious about things like weighing the potency of the power of eight intention groups against something like sigil making, because the intention aspect is kind of baked into sigil making before you create the symbol out of your intention statement. And I just wonder if that would have any added effect or if it's an unnecessary step. I'm just thinking about like the upper limits of, of what's really possible. I know you've looked at the brainwaves of people that are doing this and they kind of match Sufi masters and that kind of thing. Like what if people were raised from the ground up to believe this was possible and learned it in school and maybe uh, writing it into the physical space in a sigil might add 10% potency. I'm not sure, but what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't even know what a sigil is. Could you enlighten me? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. So with sigils, people, it's largely starts the same way. You come up with a good sigil statement. Uh, there are qualities of a well-designed statement, just like intention. And then you, there's a couple different schools of thought and processes, but you take that sentence, you write it down, you then transform it into a symbol. And then you concentrate on that symbol or you put that symbol somewhere uh, where you'll subconsciously see it once in a while. And um, 
it seems to have the same effect. People can manifest their sigil statements. I know you did a interview a long time ago with my buddy Gordon White from RuneSoup. He's actually the king of sigil magic. He's got one of the best blog posts and, and courses on it. And it just seems very, very similar, but with that added step of turning the intention statement into a symbol by, you know, crossing out the duplicate letters. And there's a couple different things people do. But when you make it a symbol, I just wonder if that is either just a lateral move or if it might add a little potency. Well, here's the thing about it, Greg. There's loads of things that work. There is no one capacity or one methodology that works. You know, Reiki healing works. Reconnective healing works. Sigils probably work, although I haven't really looked into it. Certainly Power of Eight works. And my only caveat is don't try to mash them up. Don't try to say, well, hey, we should take a little bit of intention work and then mix that in with sigils or throw in a little Reiki. And while we're at it, let's have a purple flame in there and archangels coming along too. You know, we don't know what that will do. Because, again, trying to deconstruct it with some sort of scientific validity. As you said, we looked at brainwave studies. I was lucky enough to work with Life University, which is one of the largest chiropractic universities in the world, the largest and most prestigious. And they have a team of neuroscientists and they put them at my disposal to do a series of power of eight studies. Now, we did one thus far that was studying groups of power of eight groups and looking at the brainwave of one of the members, a sender, not a receiver. And as you said, we found very, very quickly a quieting of the portions of the brain that make us feel separate and also a quieting of the portions of the brain that make us feel anxious, worried, full of doubt. And so these people had brainwave signatures very similar, almost identical to Sufi masters doing chanting or Buddhist monks in ecstatic prayer. Studies that were done at the University of Pennsylvania of these groups showed almost identical effects. Now, very, very different from the brainwave signatures of people doing meditation. So imagine if you mash that up and you put meditation in with the power of eight group methodology. You don't know what you're going to come up with, and it may nullify the effect because what we see with our groups is constantly people going into a mystical state, essentially. And that state of oneness seems to be the place where miracles occur. Now, there's a giant difference between what I'm doing, I think, and what other people are doing, which is I'm doing it in a group as opposed to an individual. I don't know whether the sigils are about sending intention in an individual thing. Mm -hmm. But this is not to say intention doesn't work, sigils don't, don't work. Intention individually certainly works. What I'm fascinated by is it seems to be amplified hugely, at least intention is, when it's done in a small group. Or a large group, of course, with our intention experiments. But a group seems to have an amplifying effect. Right on. It makes a lot of sense. And I guess I'm just dancing around this because, and I don't like to make the show about me, but I, I, I tend to, in these types of interviews, want to focus on what 
might be the most effective modality because I have a particular situation where I've been deaf in the right ear since I was three from meningitis. And when I talk to someone about alternative medicine or something like Rife devices or red light therapy, you know, you hear a lot of pretty radical claims. And I actually feel like it's almost faded that I have this particular condition, which is pretty radical to be overturned. And I also have this public stage in which like it could be tested. And it's like, we could easily say that there's about 80,000 people listening. And I'm sure that they would be willing to lend me 10 minutes to concentrate on on potentially repairing that. But to do that would be like a miracle of modern science. And I guess I would ask this because one aspect is a lot of people having the same thought, but you've also said that at the same time is important. And if this is a show that just kind of comes on on demand, that might be difficult. But how important is that aspect of it being at the same time? If you have enough people concentrating on the same thought, is it crucial that it is in unison? Well, there's several things that are not crucial, Greg. Number one, you don't need 80,000. You just need about eight. Um, <laughs> people think the more the better all the time. But certainly going back to that seed experiment I talked about in the beginning of our interview, there wasn't a difference with size. More was not better. We were just as effective with 100 as we were with thousands. More or less exactly the same. The only thing that changed was one group, which was a audience of healing touch practitioners. And they were very experienced in sending intention. So they had a huge effect. And so experience may matter, but not necessarily size. So the miracles I'm telling you about, people getting up out of a wheelchair, and, you know, that's a pretty big miracle. That was one 10-minute session, her first time she did it with a small group. And it was only a group of eight or 12, something like that. And I'll say right now, too, you heard how it started, me saying, oh, I don't know, I'll put people in groups of eight or so. And my husband, being the great headline writer who said, I love it, the power of eight. Now, it was an accident. Eight is a nice little Goldilocks figure. So it's not too big, it's not too little. But I've seen miracles happen with five. I've seen miracles happen with 12. I've seen miracles happen with 25,000. So it doesn't really matter. But for your purposes, you just need a group and you do need to do it at the same time. And I would also, I mean, we've done many public things in terms of intention experiments. I've done 35 of them and they've all been public. So we've seen miracles in a public arena. I mean, I would recommend you just get together with seven other friends and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should just take the course and test the possibilities <laughs> myself. I Maybe so. And the <laughs> other thing, too, is get off of yourself. Right, right. You know, as I say, a lot of people who are stuck you know, I give you a wonderful example of a guy called Wes. He was, by the time I met him, somebody who really had completely lost the will to live. And it had started, he had had a lot of high hopes and dreams when he was at college, studying to be a biochemist and a very bright man, hoping to be a doctor or a biochemist, when he got called up to serve in the last years of the Vietnam War. And that was the point where you couldn't get a college deferment. 
So he had to go, and it was so traumatic for him that he came back deeply depressed, quit college, never went back, and his life just went into a terrible downward spiral after that. Even when he met the love of his life, she didn't last long. She ended up getting a fast-growing cancer, and so he lost her, ended up having to sell his home to pay for their medical bills, and you know, on and on it went. So by the time I met him, he just could barely get up in the morning. So he participated in a group I had just set up as an experiment at the Mile High Church outside of Denver. And first time, got in the group. He was going to put himself forward because he was so depressed, but he felt that there was another woman with stage four cancer and that maybe she was more deserving and more needing of it. So he was just a sender. And it was extraordinary. Afterward, he went home and he went to bed. And by the next morning, he woke up and he had what I hear all the time, very heightened senses. He had a drink of tea in the morning and it just was the most amazing herbal tea he'd ever had. And the flowers were sweeter than they've ever been. The grass was greener, that kind of thing. But also he found he was suddenly outgoing where he had been very introverted and trying to avoid people. And then by the next night, he had this extraordinary dream that was almost like a vision, he said, of meeting his 19-year-old self back at university and his younger self saying to him, don't worry, somehow communicating, don't worry, there's still time. And he just felt the most love and possibility and suddenly feeling all of his high hopes and dreams come flooding back. And as a result, here was like somebody, it was like Scrooge on Christmas Day. You know how he races around throwing presents at everybody. You know, his life is completely changed. Suddenly Wes is doing power jogging, power walking, and studying new things. He enrolled in courses, writing, engaged, going and doing power rate groups at his local church and being a completely transformed man. And remember, that was just all about sending. And I hear that over and over and over again. Hmm. <laughs> I love it. The examples just stack up and they make this more and more impressive. And I know we're getting to the end of the line here. I wanted to squeeze one more thing in if we could put that what doctors don't tell you hat on one more time. I know people have a lot of corona fatigue, but you wrote a blog titled The Biggest Protest Movement You Haven't Heard Of, referring to the Great Barrington Declaration. And I just think it's something we should mention. There are a lot of experts who are being pushed out of the mainstream who do not agree with how this has all been handled. I'm talking professors of Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, along with at least 40,000 scientists and medical practitioners. Talk to us a little bit about this to the degree that you're comfortable, just because I think it's important for people to at least know about this kind of resource. And I haven't had a guest who's actually written about this. Okay, sure. Well, the Great Barrington Declaration was something that was developed by, I believe it is, three initial scientists, as you say, Oxford, Harvard, Stanford. And they felt that the lockdown was not helpful and that there were better ways to handle coronavirus. And they proposed a whole way of doing so that would help protect 
the people who are vulnerable, but allow the rest of the population to go about their lives because they worried that there would be more illness as a result of lockdown, people losing their jobs and ill health, and it would be worse, particularly on the poor, you know, or poorer people, and it would end up with worse statistics. So they called it the Great Barrington Declaration because they were given a place in Barrington to do this and to film this by an organization that was a libertarian society. So they've been attacked by that, but they are not the libertarians. Actually, they're quite left wing, two of the three of them. They're just simply looking at it from a point of view of health science, which is what they are. And it's been signed by dozens and dozens of top virologists and epidemiologists and loads and loads, hundreds of thousands of people now. So if you just Google Great Barrington Debate, now the problem is, and maybe don't Google it, go to DuckDuckGo, because <laughs> it was initially buried by Google and elsewhere. This is a long conversation, Greg, about yes. Facebook and Google being press-ganged or being complicit in promoting the government's and this is both sides of the Atlantic, the government's version of events and solutions. And so there's a lot of, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is suing Facebook at the moment because he's basically saying, look, you are a information source, but you are basically just spouting government propaganda, something to that effect. But he is actually suing them now. So the Great Barrington Declaration is worth looking into because it shows a different point of view and it's by independent virologists and independent scientists. And there are many other scientific studies coming through looking at the current solutions to COVID and finding them really wanting, whether it's mask wearing, lockdown, this isn't, and it's not politicized. And that's the problem now. The whole solution to COVID has been so politicized, it's essentially Republican, equals no masks, no social distancing or lockdown, Democrats equal lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. It shouldn't be that. It should simply be what does the scientific evidence show? And the scientific evidence shows that most of our solutions, everything from the testing procedures we have to the numbers they're showing to lockdown as a solution and even the vaccine itself, have serious problems. And that should be aired. And I say this as a journalist, because people will say, oh, you're anti-government, you're anti-vaccine. No, I'm not. I'm just a real journalist. And so I talk about the truth without fear or favor. People can see that, by the way, on my blog every week. I'm Most weeks, I'm writing things about COVID, et cetera. And we're doing a free COVID event sometime in January or February, a free live event with some of these scientists. So you can find out more on lynnmctaggart.com. Amazing. Yes. Cheers to all that. I definitely wanted to fit that in because I think 
maybe people in this audience are convinced of a lot of the things you're talking about, but we have to have the conversation with friends and family who aren't so convinced and they just keep hearing trust the science, but science isn't a single conclusion. What they mean is trust whatever we tell you and just shut up and listen. And if they really wanted to be uh, truthful about that trust the science statement, well, go look at all these many, many scientists who have a different opinion. You're just not getting on the TV. So I think when we're trying to approach our friends and family, that resource is great because if you want to trust Ivy League scientists, well, how about these Ivy League scientists? And maybe a deep dive into that will convince some people to kind of come to our side and and, and be a little more critical or, or a little more open-minded about what's going on out there. So I appreciate you spelling that out for us. And Man, this has just really been amazing. Thanks so much for taking the time. I think people are really going to love all the topics on the table today. Before I cut you loose, definitely remind people about your website, your courses, and anything else they might want to check out or get involved with. Okay, great. Well, I'm at lynnmctaggart.com. And if you want to find out more about my Power of Eight Intention Master Class, the 2021 version starts on February 6th. So we've got the doors open. Find out more on lynnmctaggart.com and just go over to the section on courses. It's Power of Eight Intention Masterclass 2021. And you'll find out all of what we teach and get involved in. And also we're setting up a community site so you can set up a Power of Eight group. I've got a Facebook page Lynn McTaggart 2011, but also Facebook group page, Connecting and Healing Through the Power of Eight, where people are forming Power of Eight groups. And of course, in my course, you'll be put in a Power of Eight group and they'll become your intention family. I should also tell you that if you want to find out more about what we're doing vis-a-vis COVID, we're having a free event about staying safe with real information about how to stay safe. And that's a free event. And that is at getwell.solutions. Awesome. And I'll add uh, the appropriate links to the show notes as well, but very cool. I really appreciate the work you do and your time today. Can't thank you enough. I know it's a marathon session around here, but do take care. Thank you so much, Greg. You got it. Eureka, higher side chatters. All right. I loved it. Lynn McTaggart, the power of eight, and what a power it seems to be. My mind has always been kind of blown by this sort of intention stuff. And I don't know if there's anyone who's been more hands on with the studies and the data collection and the dedication than Lynn. So, who better to make the case? I've also been getting emails about how we haven't really done a magic show in a while. And this was kind of my attempt. Personally, I think this qualifies most magic to me when we're talking about what an individual can implement into their life. It's just a well-trained mind, will, and action. Of course, Lynn's big point is you don't even have to have a well-trained mind for this. You just have to do it. And you know me by now. I tend to want to look at the range of different approaches and find the one that works best so that I don't waste my time or so that when someone tries something and it doesn't work, they don't dismiss the whole range of consciousness abilities. And then I tend to settle on what I would do. And that's as far as I get kind of like exercise. I never really do it 
but I read a lot about the most effective routines because, to use a Tim Dillon phrase, let's do it once and do it right, which is how exercise works as far as I know. <laughs> I do love Lynn's confidence, though. This is a pretty radical practice by mainstream terms, and I appreciate her being so bold about it. I still have questions about what the wider implications mean about reality and consciousness. Yes, I have a broad model for it, but I like to get into the details of, well, why doesn't it work this way? Or why is this more effective, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, I picked a few examples today that probably didn't work best for this interview and in using the queen and sigil magic. Lynn is right that pretty much any world leader or royalty or billionaire philanthropist has just as many people out there lobbing positive thoughts at them as negative ones. So it doesn't really matter what I think about them, because clearly not everyone thinks like I do, or this wouldn't be a counterculture show. But my point was just that if you look at how this world seems to have been designed to be without technology, strip that away, we'd be in little villages and communities and as individuals, we'd be pretty unknown outside of our circle. But because of our man-made, outdated political structures and global communication technologies and all of that, hundreds of millions of people are aware of certain figures in leadership positions. And those people have a lot of positive and negative intention, quote-unquote, lobbed at them. And I don't see any indication that it makes much of a difference in their lives. That's what I think is kind of curious. I mean, does the CIA use the power of eight? Why even stage coups or launch assassination teams if you can just do some of that work from the Pentagon intention room? Sure, there's a blowback effect, but just don't tell them that and get eight more recruits for the next one. I know they had the men who stare at goats stuff. But now we have Lynn's process, and it seems to have no limits for healing. Why would it have limits for other stuff? There is the argument that the universe is tilted towards the positive. We do need love and touch and human interaction to thrive and survive. So maybe positive intention does get a little bit more fuel to it. It almost would have to, or there'd be no one left. But look at the seed thing. How the hell does it work via a photograph? How high does the resolution need to be on that photograph? Does a black and white photo work just as well? What about an 8-bit photo that's so pixelated you can barely see what you're looking at? What about taking four pictures of four seeds each, and then instead of planting those in groupings, mixing them up and planting one seed from each photo in each box? Would the intended upon seeds still outgrow the rest with one oversized stalk in each pot? I just have so many questions. And sigil magic. I want to know if that extra step of writing it into a symbol adds any juice. Let's do apples to apples and do a power of eight intention and then a power of eight intention where the intention statement is broken down into a sigil and that's focused on. Let's just compare those two things. I don't have a dog in the fight. I just want to understand what's under the hood of reality. And I get Lynn's point, which is that the power of eight is what she focuses on, and it works, so she's not too worried about the rest. Yes, other things work too, but why fix what isn't broken? How many processes do you really need to get that same result? 
But to have someone who's been so dedicated to this study, as well as maintaining a health magazine called What Doctors Don't Tell You, I mean, <laughs> this is pretty perfect for us, right? And I never really want to make these interviews about me, but objectively, I have this deaf ear, a condition that the Western system says is completely unfixable. And if it was to be fixed through intention, wouldn't that be the thing that made a believer out of all of us? I might sound like a broken record sometimes, but it's hard not to bring it up when we're talking about such radical healing effects. And I've read the book, I've seen the studies, I am a believer, but I also wonder why these things don't just explode by word of mouth if it's basically magic healing that affects everything from cancer to blindness to paralysis. Why doesn't it just completely overtake Western medicine by the results alone? I guess the easy answer is that you have to actually do it and how many people really do. But Lynn's process isn't that complicated, so I'm curious if we could try this for me. Maybe we could whip up a little Christmas miracle. <laughs> Perhaps we should try it for someone else and see how it ricochets to me, if that's the best way. But I asked her about timing, because it would have been very simple to just do a little thing in the wrap-up of this show about it and hope that when I wake up in a few days, I'm here in the world in stereo. But obviously, the aspect of doing it together in time is important. Maybe I have eight listeners who actually have experience doing this and wouldn't mind forming a little powwow with me. I know Gordon has a whole intention room aspect of his premium membership built right in, and they have had some amazing results. We talked to him about the fires last time. Maybe I could just rent them or something. I can't imagine that it wouldn't be better to go with people who have done this before a few times. But I'm pretty sure you guys trust me not to say that I've been healed if I haven't. And I also think this isn't something like allergies that can come and go day by day. I'm fully freaking deaf in the right ear. Wouldn't it be pretty amazing to see that overturned with mental intention exercises? I've already accepted this aspect of my life, so I'm not really emotional about it or desperate. But if these things work, let's test them with a pretty extreme condition. That's just how I feel about it. But shoot me an email if you've done this before and would like to help me out. Maybe I'll take Lynn's course first for myself to really make sure that I have all the pieces in place. In 10 years, I've never really pushed to implement what we talk about on the show for personal use. Although red light therapy was a close one, but it fell apart when I had to buy a $1,000 headlamp from the Netherlands. And some of you might be saying, well, gee, in the last episode you did with Chris Bledsoe, he mentioned that he has a healing ability ever since he's been visited by the angels. And I would say, you are very right, dear listener. And I've already had some conversations with Chris and sent him the few things that he asks for that seem to make his healing process work remotely. So we'll see how that goes first, but let's, uh, let's talk about it. Let's arrange something if you guys are into it. I only need a couple of you, as you know. But with Chris, it would be, dare I say, even more amazing to me, because quite honestly, it would also validate all the other elements of Chris's story, which are pretty vast and pretty extreme. 
but let's try some stuff, right? Let's pursue some things. We shouldn't have to guess. If it works, it works. But if you did like this and you're interested in a follow-up, well, this Thursday, the 17th of December, Lynn is doing a free live event with Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is also a previous THC guest, but it's called Reprogramming Yourself for Healing. And I will probably be there because I'm very interested in hearing these two talk together. Also, in higher side news, I got put in YouTube timeout for a three-year-old episode with David Seaman, so I'm literally not allowed to get this show up on the YouTube channel until next week. And I don't pay much attention to the YouTube channel usually, but I got this notice, and then it took me to the stats page, and we have 80,000 YouTube subscribers. For an audio-only show that doesn't even emphasize its YouTube channel, that's pretty good. My email request letter has some stats in it to try to sway potential guests, and I think it still says I have 60,000 YouTube subscribers, so probably time to update that. But I started thinking, YouTube apparently sends out a framed platinum play button award to anyone who's gotten 100,000 subscribers. Well, I wonder if anyone's gotten that award and also gotten kicked off in the same year. That's one of my 2021 goals. I'm putting it out there right now. If we can just get that last 20,000, which seems pretty easy, it would be a nice capstone to the YouTube part of the journey to have that award. And then, hell, at that point, I might even leave myself. But yeah, banned this week. So that's why the shows are going to be lagging behind. But there was a lot of fun stuff in the Plus show today. Lynn talking to us about what thoughts even are, describing them as mental trespassers, tips for memory retention and greater recall, how true diet and health conflicts with the official advice, how to change or control our thoughts, the coronavirus intention sessions that she's done, and the results there. Their ability to reduce violence and hot spots around the world with intention weather, permaculture, and intention, mysterious qualities of water and how it relates to all this, intention statement creation protocols, Lynn's thoughts on where the healing actually comes from, and then I haven't really made the free plus split yet. I have to see if the Great Barrington Declaration will only be in the plus show or if that's what we're going to end with, but either way, it's important. All you got to do is Google Great Barrington Declaration it's just another resource for the coronavirus skeptics out there because just like the engineers and architects for 9-11 Truth, it is a group of professionals, high, high-level professionals, who are not happy with the coronavirus policies and protocols that have been implemented this year, and they think there's a much better way. So for people who need good resources, that is one. So, all important stuff, and I hope you feel motivated to dig deeper into your own abilities and, of course, a THC Plus membership, but regardless, organizations like the CDC and the FDA, they like to parade white lab coats out on TV and act like they care about each and every little precious life, but we know them by their fruits. Both of them are revolving doors of corruption with plenty of deaths on their hands, and it's more about what they've omitted and censored from the medical toolbox, if you ask me. Why would they only allow for answers that line the pockets of multinational 
medical corporations if there are other solutions on the table and they really just care about your health. I don't even know why we have to keep having this conversation, but we do. Ask your conventional friends and family why we haven't heard a single word about how to properly take care of ourselves on any of the mainstream platforms. Wear a mask, don't worry about your diet. Wear a mask, don't worry about how much zinc and sunlight you get. And they would also never talk about something like the power of eight, no matter how many studies Lynn threw at them. But if we do manifest our reality according to what we're consciously focused on and what we've come to believe, then it's no surprise that so much time and attention goes into controlling that. It's like Chris Bledsoe said, we're co-creating this world whether we like it or not, whether we've been manipulated or not. It's just the way it works. So tune into some more useful frequencies for your own sake, because the stakes right now are pretty high. But with that, I'm out of here. Big thanks to Lynn. Big thanks to you guys. I've done my part. Your move, my manipulators, consciousness corralers, and manifestation ability muters. Your fucking Truth has been hidden from me Didn't believe it myself Got lizard people on top of the world And I wish it was somebody else Believe it or not, the truth is out there For people who have the eyes to see My favorite show the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we will make it through Chats THC